Amen, amen. Grab a seat, and as you grab a seat, grab your Bible and get it in your lap in front of you to Acts chapter 11. If you need a Bible under a seat uh, nearby you, you'll find a Bible. Open up to the book of Acts in uh, chapter 11. And as you turn there, uh, many of you, you would have seen this in the news over the last six months or so, but this last fall, uh, Amazon announced uh, something pretty big for their company, uh, and that was that they would be establishing a second headquarter. And um, as this announcement came out from Amazon, it was a bit of a unique announcement, and that um, everyone expected to hear where the second headquarter was going to be. Uh, but what they did is instead they kind of opened up this, this competition and they laid out the criteria of here are some things we're looking for in the city that will house our second headquarter. But uh, then, then they kind of let all of these cities just go have a, you know, competition. Let's see who wins this. Who's going to win this bid to host Amazon's what's being called HQ2. Now, I bring that up because Amazon has made a strategic move that they think for the direction of their company moving forward. Um, uh, God, as we study uh, Acts chapter 11 today, I bring up Amazon's HQ2 because I believe what we're going to see here is God is setting up an HQ2 of his own here in the early church. And why, why do I say that? Um, we have seen over the last couple weeks in our study of the book of Acts, um, God said right at the beginning that, um, uh, that the apostles were to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then where? To the ends of the earth. And we've seen over the last couple chapters God's strategic purposes in taking the gospel message to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. And what God is going to do today is he is going to establish a kind of an HQ2. If Jerusalem is the headquarters, he's going to go 300 miles north to a city called Antioch. And as the gospel uh, uh, grips the city of Antioch and as believers begin to be established there, what no one knows at the time that we're going to study Acts chapter 11, what the missionaries who take the gospel to this city don't even know is that God is going to use Antioch to be the key kind of sending base hub for the Gentile mission to, to the ends of the earth. And we um, are so fortunate to study a passage like this because if you've been around Harvest at all in the last couple months, you see the, or if you're new here, you see these scent shirts that people are wearing around. Um, we have a, we believe God's given us a vision as a church to not just be a church that's just kind of comfortable coming here on Sunday and um, then getting into a small group and saying, hey, that's all God has for us. We believe God has called us to establish a sending base that will be about sending people. That'll be about establishing more churches here, near, and far to the glory of God. So this, Acts chapter 11, is actually a really massive passage for our church. Because what we're going to see in Acts chapter 11 are, are, are what God uses as the building blocks to establish a sending base kind of church. What the church of Antioch is going to grow into is a sending base church. And here's what we're going to find today, that the building blocks of a sending base church are saved, discipled, and sacrificial believers. And so um, today's message has a huge kind of corporate application. What I mean by corporate application, really it has an application for us as a church. But here's the thing we're going to see. So much of this vision God's given our church, if we're really going to be a sending-based church, it really comes down to how we're nurturing and growing in our own personal walks with Jesus Christ. Because unless there are healthy disciples, there is no healthy sending base. 
Unless there are healthy disciples, there is no healthy sending base. And we are going to see this proof and point as we study the beginning of this church in a city called Antioch. Now, today's message really has two parts to it. Part one is this. As we get into the beginning of Acts chapter 11, we are going to see Peter. He's going to recap this story that we studied last week. So if you weren't here last week, you're going to get a perfect kind of Cliff Notes version of what happened last week because Peter's going to have to recap this for the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem and Judea because here's the deal. Peter went into a Gentile's house last week, and if you're a good Jewish guy, you don't go into Gentile's house. You don't go into their houses. You don't eat food with them. Growing up as a good Jew, there was an us and them mentality. And if you were us, you didn't mix with them. And Peter did something absolutely radical for his culture. He went and he met with them. He went and he took the gospel into a Gentile household. And so he's going to recap because he's got some splaining to do. Not explaining. He's got some splaining to do to the believers, the Jewish believers back in Judea, and we're going to see him recap this. And so if last week was the story of the establishment of the first Christian household, part two then, where we're going to spend most of our time here today, is the story of the first Gentile Christian church. Massive implications, massive application for us. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we study his word this morning. Father, we do ask for your help right now. Uh, God, we, um, we, we, we need your help to focus we need your help to um, listen. Lord, I need your help to teach this, this passage in a right way. God, I don't want to muddy this up. I don't want it to be unclear. I don't want to say something that your word doesn't say. Lord, I don't, in, the, in, in, in kind of the middle of the communication that happens, <clears throat> I don't want anything in your word to be misunderstood. And so, God, we, we just ask for your spirit's help to give us clarity of mind clarity of heart, to really hear what you want us to hear today, to really hear what your word says today. And God, would you just meet us here in power as we study your word? There's something that happens that only you can do when your word is open, going deep into the, into the, to the, to the corners of our heart. And so God, will you do that now? Do the miracle that only you can do as your word is proclaimed. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump into Acts chapter 11 here. Let's see how Peter recaps for the Jewish believers what in the world happened in Acts chapter 10. Verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, they heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so uh, he, uh, he comes back into Jerusalem, and this circumcision party, this can be one of two things. It is either kind of a, a, a camp of, 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 of Jew, ri- some scholars call them rigorists, Jewish rigorists, who are like, Peter, what in the world are you doing? A lot, most scholars think this was just a group of Jewish-rooted Christians back in the area of Judea who are like, Peter, you just did a major no-no. What in the world were you thinking? And now Peter, Peter's going to explain what happened. Verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again, again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy, Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's a great statement right there. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to say that these Gentiles could not be saved if God was clearly saving them? And so he just explains his actions here. Now, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell what? They look at each other, and they're like, what, what do we say to this? And here's, here's where they come to. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And that is, as we said last week, that's really, really good news for us sitting here, most of us sitting here 2,000 plus years later in Indiana, in the United States, because most of us who fill this room today are, in fact, Gentiles. And so you see the establishment of the first Gentile Christian household. Now we're going to see God expand this mission to the Gentiles. And in order for God to expand this mission to the Gentiles, God is going to do something strategic. He's going to set up this sending base, this HQ2, um, that's going to lead the charge for all of what Paul's missionary journeys will come in the rest of the book of Acts that we are about to study. In fact, every single one, all three of Paul's missionary journeys will launch out of this city where believers are about to be made right here. And so part two, we go there now, the establishment of the first Gentile Christian church. Verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, we got to stop right there because Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he just did something to us. He, he, this requires that we make a bit of a transitional jump with Luke back to an event that happened in Jerusalem. And the event was the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a bold proclaimer of Christ. And it ended up costing him his life. And when he was stoned and killed for his faith, what happened is the believers in Jerusalem began to scatter. They began to flee. And Luke notes for us a couple of the places that believers left Jerusalem and fled to. 
Um, it tells us, he tells us in verse 19, they went as far as Phoenicia. Phoenicia is kind of highlighted here in the yellow. Uh, Phoenicia is a region up on the northern part of the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, Phoenicia is a region. It said they also fled to Cyprus. Cyprus is the big island that's sitting in the Mediterranean. And they fled to a city. What city was that? They fled to Antioch. They took off 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and they, some of the believers settled in the city of Antioch. It's going to be very strategic. But it tells us something. Go back, to, heads back in your Bible, verse 19. It tells us the focus of their mission at this time is proclaiming Jesus to who? To the Jews. And you can't blame them. The early Christians' understanding was simply that the Jewish Messiah had come. Jesus was the long-awaited for Jewish Messiah. And so as these early Christians begin to flee out of Jerusalem, they're taking this gospel, this good news of the Messiah coming to Jews because they think it only applies to Jews. And God, throughout the book of Acts, he's expanding the application of who Jesus applies to. Not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, right? And so this is what we see here now. Verse 20 tells us of some awesome missionary trailblazers who say, hey, not Jews only. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the who? Do you have a footnote next to that word? Uh, down to the bottom of your Bible, who are the Hellenists? Greeks. They are people of a Greek descent. They are people who come from some sort of Greek descent. You see the word Hellenists earlier. Uh, Hellenists were around Jerusalem. Uh, the Hellenists around Jerusalem in that area were probably Greek-descending, Greek-speaking Jews. The Hellenists, the Greek-descending people up in Antioch are not Greek-speaking Jews. These are full-out full Gentiles. These are descendants of Greece. They've settled here. And now you have some missionary trailblazers. What are, the names, what are the names of these people going to Antioch here? What are the names of these missionaries going to Antioch here? We don't know. We don't know. These are unnamed missionary trailblazers who will take the gospel to a city that will become HQ2 of, of the gospel movement across the Gentile world, and we don't even know their names. And I bet they're, they're sitting in heaven right now going, praise God, you don't know my name. Unnamed, there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, these Greek-descending Gentiles also. And what did they do? Preaching who? Preaching the Lord Jesus to them. Now, I just want to stop here and I want to make a note because oftentimes, especially in the book of Acts, there's so many names of cities, there's so many names of towns, there's so many names of regions that when we come across another city name, what we often kind of think, maybe you don't, but I do, is kind of just this dusty old Bible town. It's just this dusty old Bible town, and we may have in our head just this picture of this ancient little town. This was not the case with the city of Antioch. Antioch was a major metropolitan area in its day. Antioch was the third leading city in all of the Roman Empire. Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. 
It was the third leading city in, city in population. It was the third leading city in influence. In fact, I want us to see what John Stott has to say about the city of Antioch. And he says this, no more appropriate place could be imagined. He's, made, he's saying no more appropriate place could be imagined for the launch of the missional movement to Gentiles either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. Over the years, it became known as Antioch the Beautiful because of its fine buildings and by Luke's day was famous for its long paved boulevard, which ran from north to south and was flanked by a double colonnade with trees and fountains. Now, that long boulevard that ran right smack dab north to south, it was, it was Antioch's uh, Meridian Street. Four miles of paved, polished stone. One historian notes that the paved, polished stone was granite. Four miles of paved granite through the heart of their city with two sets of colonnades on each side with gardens and trees and fountains. This place was sweet. <laughs> it was just a major, major international hub of its day. And Stott goes on to say that. Although it was a Greek city by foundation, its population estimated as at least 500,000. And it was extremely cosmopolitan. Greeks, Jews, Orientals, and Romans formed the mixed multitude of what Josephus called the third city of the empire after Rome and Alexandria. And this is where God sends some unnamed missionaries to go and say, go tell people in the city about Jesus. And they do. Now, I want to stop and I want to make our first point here. In order for God to build a sending base, how does God go about building a sending base church? The first thing is this. God sends missionary trailblazers to take the gospel to strategic places. God sends missionary trailblazers to take the gospel to strategic places. And I just want us to camp out here for a few minutes. I want us to talk about what does this look like for us as a church? As we think about being a church that is about sending people, how do we go about asking the Lord to allow this to be a place that unleashes people as missionary trailblazers into lost strategic places? And I'm I just praying about this point this week in this message. I'm just praying that God might, this might be the point in your life this very sermon point might be the point in your life that God uses to call you somewhere to some unreached people group, to be one of these unnamed missionaries who history will never read about, who history will never know, but you will be part of establishing a church somewhere in the world that God will use to launch a movement across that country and that continent. Now, I think most of us, when we hear a pastor say something like that, we assume that's not us. Any amens to that? We assume that's not us. Let's not make that assumption, church. Man, may this be a, a church where when we're challenged to pray and ask God, are you, are you sending, are you calling? Are you asking us to uproot and move to a strategic place where you want the gospel to go forth for the good of your kingdom that we don't assume that applies to someone else, but we start with the assumption it may apply to us and ask God to make it clear why he wants us to stay instead of go. Now, 
for some of us in here, I'm praying that um, we are those missionary trailblazers to a strategic part of the world like we see these unnamed missionaries to Antioch. Uh, for many of us in here, that strategic mission field uh, where the gospel must go forth might be two doors down in the neighborhood, might be the next cubicle over in the workplace, it might be a family member, but would we just have a heart that, God, would you make us missionary trailblazers? Would you make us missionary trailblazers that are so passionate about seeing the gospel go forth? where the gospel is not flourishing. Amen? And you see this here with these people, unnamed, we don't even know their names, up to Antioch. Now, look at what happens here in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was what? And the hand of the Lord was with them. We're going to come back to that phrase. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so you have these unnamed missionaries, they come into the city of Antioch, they begin to proclaim Jesus Christ, and then the very next phrase, after it tells us they begin to preach Jesus Christ, it tells us that the hand of the Lord was with them. It's a statement of God's divine favor on the work that he's called people to do. Literally, you can see the picture here of God's hand on and in and behind the work of these unknown missionaries to Antioch. In God's hand, God's divine blessing is on the work, on the proclamation of the gospel coming out of their minds in such a way that it says a great number who believed, what did they do? A great number who believed, they, they turned to the Lord. It's something really crucial for how that sentence is structured. Legitimate belief in Jesus Christ always equals a turning to Jesus Christ as Lord. Get that now. If you've zoned me out, if you're sleeping right now, wake up because you got to hear this. A legitimate belief in Jesus Christ will always equal, as this sentence is structured is so important, it always equals a turning to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, why is this so crucial for our day? In Antioch, this is like, you're like, yeah, they believed in Jesus and they turned and they had everything to lose, like their belief in Jesus. This is so crucial in our day and kind of our very Christianized, and you hear me talk about this all the time because I'm so passionate about it. People in our area who believe, yeah, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. Well, how do you know? Well, I believed in him, but there was never ever a turning in their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There was an acknowledgement maybe with their mouth. There's an intellectual assent in their brain. But true, legitimate belief in Jesus goes, I believe he is Lord, and I believe I'm lost without him, and I'm, 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 I'm cashing all my chips in for, to live as if he is Lord. You are Lord now, and I am not, and there's a death to self, and there's a turning to Christ. That's legitimate faith in Jesus. That's legitimate faith in Jesus. And so, 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 soul-searching, right? Heart-searching. Paul commands us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're commanded in Scripture, test yourself. If there's only ever been some intellectual assent, but you've never turned, and there's never been an evident change that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, search your heart this morning. Search your heart this morning. And the hand of God is on this work 
a great number believe they turn to the Lord. Second point, write it down, is this. How does God go about building a sending base? It starts with this. God saves many people in these strategic places. You can't have a church without people who see their need for Jesus Christ and get saved and turn their life over to Jesus. You can't have a sending-based church without reaching individual people to the glory of Christ, and God will save. How he begins to go about building a sending-based church in Antioch is he saves these people. Now, he doesn't just say, okay, um, missionaries, good job. We got some people saved in a new city. Um, I'm sure they'll be fine. On to the next place. Look at what he does next. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so um, this is a common thing we saw in the early church. Whenever the gospel advanced into a new city, whenever it advanced into a new area, whenever it reached new people... um, the apostles back in Jerusalem would go, hey, we need to send someone to check this out to make sure this is a legitimate work of God here. They did it when the gospel went into Samaria. And they're doing it again now when the gospel goes into Antioch to make sure, like, are these Gentiles, is this really a work of God up there? And Barnabas is the guy that they send to go check out the legitimacy of the work God does. And Barnabas does three things when he comes to town here. He observes, he reacts, and then he exhorts. He comes into town and it says he saw the work that was going, and then his reaction, he was glad. He smiles over what God has done here, and then he exhorts, he teaches, he tells these new Christians in Antioch what they are to do. And now, don't look in your Bible, because this exhortation is probably not what we would have said. We would have felt in this moment like we would have had to have some robust teaching for these new believers. What is the very first thing you would have taught to a group of new Christians in a new city? Look at what Barnabas says to them. Back in uh, verse 24, 23. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to what? To remain faithful. That's not uber exciting. Like how often do we hear that message like in our kind of day and hey, hey, you know, you new Christians, you know what I want you to do? Just remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Hey, Jesus followers, 2,000 years later after Barnabas said that, do you know, are you looking for a word from the Lord today? Are you hoping God will speak specifically into your situation? Are you saying, God, I need a word from you? Here it is. Just remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You're like, I was hoping for a little more than that. I I know. (laughs) But the very first thing Barnabas has for these new believers, hey, get up tomorrow and just be resolutely faithful to Jesus Christ. Then, Cool, Barnabas, what do we do the next day? Get up that day and just be resolutely faithful to Jesus Christ. Okay, the third, and Barnabas is like, yeah, I could go on and on. Same thing, different day. Get up, 
be resolutely faithful to Jesus Christ. And this is what Barnabas says. Now, look at what he does after he speaks this initial word into them. Um, Verse 24, uh, for he was a good man, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went where? Where did he go now? He leaves them, and he goes to a new city, but he goes there for a purpose. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? So Barnabas knows something strategic has to happen with these new believers in a new city. He goes, we got we to gotta teach these people what it looks like to follow Christ. And then he remembers something. He remembers that God said that Saul was going to be like the mouthpiece of the Lord to the Gentile world. And so he goes north and he hangs the left over the top of the Mediterranean there. And he goes to Tarsus and he's like, Saul, where's Saul? Do you know Saul? You know Saul? Well, where is he? And he finds Saul and he brings him back. Now, this is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to eight years after Saul's conversion. Saul has had time himself to study, to understand more of the things of the Lord. And he comes now back to Antioch with Barnabas. And what do Saul and Barnabas do for a whole year for these people? What do they do? Always an open book test. Always an open book test that you have, okay? What do they do? They teach them. And this is, forgive, uh, this is, um, what's the best way to say it? This is like some of the unglamorous side of discipleship. Every day, for a whole year, Saul and Barnabas get up and they say, hey, you got your, you got paper, you got your pencils, okay, um, uh, scroll of Isaiah today. Let's talk about that. And let's talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah that I say every year, uh, every day, day after day, for an entire year, Saul and Barnabas poured their life into these new believers in Antioch. Why is this so crucial? Why this is so crucial? Because I believe this is often the most overlooked aspect of the Great Commission. So we talk about being a church that wants to be a fulfillment of the Great Commission to the glory of God. Let's remind ourselves what the Great Commission says, Matthew 28. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of where? Of all nations. So we're going, we're going with the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what's it say right after that? Teaching them teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I stand up here and I admit to you that teaching element of the Great Commission is the hardest thing about discipleship. It is, it's so exciting. When you go to that family member, you go to that friend who's been on your heart, you go to whoever, that coworker, and you share the gospel with them, and the Holy Spirit is already, like, you can tell the Holy Spirit's already beat you to it, and they're ready, and they're receptive to the gospel, and they uh, bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, and you all celebrate that. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, that's just the beginning of the Great Commission work. The next part of it, standing up next to them right here in a couple weeks, baptizing them in the name of the Lord, uh, uh, the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That is awesome, right? 
And we want a culture here where you guys are baptizing the ones you're leading to the Lord. But then it's the hard work of week after week, Bibles open, teaching them what it actually looks like to follow after Jesus. Now, remember what we're studying here, how God has established an HQ2 for the Gentile global mission movement. This third point is really important if we're going to become a healthy sending-based church as well. God sends older believers to disciple younger believers. That older, younger isn't necessarily a statement on a numerical age. It's a statement on time and maturity walking with Jesus, that God intentionally will send older believers to disciple younger believers. We've used a, um, a phrase around here before, and I want to remind us of this phrase. We believe around here something so crucial. God has designed and wired us to grow the most in the middle third relationship in life. What do I mean by the middle third relationship? Middle third relationship. You have someone who's ahead of you a bit in their walk with Jesus Christ. They've walked with them. You can tell there's maturity in their faith. They're pouring their life into you, and you in turn are pouring your life into a younger believer who you are discipling. The sad reality is, and I don't want to just be like a Debbie Downer on kind of the state of the church and our culture, but I tend to be a Debbie Downer on the state of a church in our culture. <laughs> the sad reality is most of us can go through our entire lives in the American church today and never be discipled or disciple another believer. And even as I say this, some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about when you say being discipled or discipling another believer. Let me say it like this. Most of us can go our entire life in the American church today and never have a spiritual mentor we are meeting with on a regular basis who's teaching us more of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And most of us can go our entire life and never do that for someone else. I'm telling you, what we see here of Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, Day after day for an entire year, let me teach you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let me teach you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let me teach you what it looks like to follow Jesus is crucial if we are going to be the healthy, sending-based church that God has called us to be. Now, can I make an observation to you? Say yes. Because it's coming whether you want it or not. There's some trends you notice within our church in different seasons. And let me tell you a trend that we're noticing as a group of uh, kind of elders and pastors in our church right now. Um, in our church right now, we are noticing a trend of, of um, a, a large group of our newer people attending here at Harvest. As we meet them, as we talk to them, as we hear their story, they are like long-time Jesus followers. I'm talking like walked with Jesus as Lord of their life for decades. And I, I just started like, I just kept hearing more people's story and I'm like, okay, what is going on? And you might be going, well, didn't we just launch this like sent vision? And shouldn't that be about like going out and reaching new believers with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Everyone say yes. You know what I believe God's doing right now on the heels of the launch of the sent vision this spring? I believe God is bringing us an influx of people He's, uh, he's, uh, growing, he's growing the staff, so to speak. Because as we reach these new believers for Jesus Christ, God's bringing us people who are able to pour their life into these young believers and walk with them and teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if you're here, and if you're newer to Harvest, and you've come here and you've kind of been in church search mode, and you're going, 
man, I don't know why God has moved us on from this last place or whatever. Um, I just want to encourage you to think as you go home and as you eat lunch today, maybe God has brought you to harvest on the heels of the launch of this sent vision because he, he wants you exactly here to pour your life into some new believer you're going to meet through this church here as we go out to be the discipler that this new believer needs to be. So this is what you see here. For a year, Saul and Barnabas pour their life into them. Now, um, I want you to see some of the fruit of this discipleship in this new church in Antioch. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay, this is just, just an interesting fact because I've always been confused about this in the Bible. I've always been confused why in the Bible when it say prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Like, is Luke just missed, does he just have a bad sense of direction or what? Because we say, you go down, you go south. Um, when, when the Bible talks about going down from Jerusalem, they don't talk about going down in a sense of direction. They talk about going down in a sense of sea elevation. Jerusalem sits up high. Like, one thing I didn't ever know until I was over there, uh, Israel's like a mountainous country. We always just think of, like, deserts and plains, it's mountainous, and Jerusalem sits up high. And so anytime you say, it, it says, and they went up to Jerusalem, it's talking about sea level. Anytime you see they went down from Jerusalem, even if they're going north, it's talking about sea level. Everyone say, that was interesting. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the, by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, this took place in the days of Claudius. I submit to you what we're about to read, only God can do in the heart of new believers. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now we read that and we go, oh cool. No, think about this. This is a brand new baby church. This is a brand new baby church who before the gospel of Jesus Christ came had no context for what it looked like to follow Jesus. And uh, Saul and Barnabas have spent a year there. They've poured their life. They're teaching them, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. One of the things of what it looks like to follow Jesus is like a, a, a denial of yourself and a, rad a life of radical generosity. And uh, then this, this prophet comes to town. And he prophesies, there's a famine coming and uh, Judea's gonna be hit really hard. And you know what these new believers in Antioch do? Uh, one of the guys takes his hat off and they pass the hat around and they go, well, if Judea's gonna be hit really hard, let's take an offering for them. And let's send it down with Barnabas and Saul to the elders in the church down in Judea so that as needs arise, they will have extra income. They will have extra money to meet the needs of the church. I submit to you, if we church are ever going to be the sending-based church that God has called us to be. Point four, that God's got to create a heart in the people to sacrifice for the good of, what are the last two words of that point? What are they? Capital T, capital C. That God will work within our congregation a heart to sacrifice for the good of the church. That doesn't say necessarily the good of our church. But we believe as we sacrifice for the good of our church, we're sacrificing for the good of the church. Now, how will this play out? A heart of sacrifice for the good of seeing the church built. Here's how this will play out. As we begin to plant more churches as a church, as we step up here one day and say, it's time for Shelbyville to go, and it's time to send out like 100 people from here to go with them, and it's time to do this, guess what we're going to find? 
it might hurt a little bit here, but it's a good hurt. But it might hurt a little bit here. There might be some sacrifice on the part of this church, but guess what? Anytime this church will sacrifice for the good of the church, that's a capital T if you missed that, okay? <laughs> the church, I'm telling you, it's a kingdom win. Church, look at me. Church, look at me. Church, look at me. It's not ultimately about Harvest Bible Chapel Indy South. It's ultimately about how do we best grow the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And if we'll focus on that, God will focus on this. He'll take care of us. He knows how to do that. What would it look like for us to just continue? And we have that. We're going to be a three-year-old church come September. You all are awesome of just going, we just want to see the kingdom of Jesus Christ built. How do we keep that? And how do we have the sacrificial uh, mentality like we see in the early believers in Antioch that God will use to launch a sending base out of this place for his glory? So what are the building blocks of a sending base church? The building blocks are saved and discipled and sacrificial followers of Jesus that God will grow up and turn into a congregation where he'll launch all kinds of disciples and churches out of. Church, I'm going to close this today. If you would stand with me right where you're at. And as you stand, I just want to give us three, three prayer points, if I can. Three prayer points. I appreciate just you guys leaning into this. This was a lot of explanation today, and you all leaning into this in a great way. But three prayer points for the people of Harvest today in light of this passage. Would we walk out of here praying, God, would you make me passionate about sharing the gospel with lost people? Would you put in my heart a desire to be a missionary trailblazer? Maybe for some of you that will mean a, a, a cross, a transatlantic move. And maybe for many of us it'll just mean crossing the street. But God, would you put in us a passion to share the gospel with lost people? A second prayer based on this passage today. God, would you open a door for discipleship relationships in my life? Be careful what you pray for there. God will answer it. He will. Uh, some younger believer is going to call you this week, text you this week, stop by, hey, I've just been thinking, would you have any sort of margin in your schedule where we can meet every week or every other week and would you just kind of talk to me about what it looks like to follow Jesus? Um, my prayer for us as a church is that we would not be too quick to dismiss those. But we'd be quick to say, yeah. And then third, third prayer point for us as a church this week. Lord, would you give us hearts of joyful sacrifice for the good of the church? Because when the church of Jesus Christ wins, guess what? We as his followers win as well. So Harvest... Um, what a perfect passage for us in a season where we're seeking to become the sending-based church that God's called us to be. May you go home. May you this week pour your, pour your own eyes and your own heart over Acts chapter 11 and what it says here. And may God do the work in each of us as disciples of his so he can grow this place up to be the sending base in which he's called it to be. We love you. We love you. We love you. You're loved. You're sent. And we'll see you right here next Sunday.